This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about everything in print. I'm Stuart in L.A., and we're a month into our exploration of 007's literary adventures. We've reached book number four, Diamonds Are Forever, which was published in 1956 and written, like all the books that we'll be covering in this series, by Ian Fleming, who for the first time seems to choose a new enemy for Bond to face. You know, up to this point, it's been Cold War politics, and specifically Bond has been foiling plots that have, in some way or another, been touched by Smirsh, Soviets. And this time, it's a new enemy, diamond smugglers. This is a different kind of threat for England. It is a huge industry, it's 50 million pounds, and we're told in information that London is where 90% of all diamond sales occur. Most diamonds are found in British-controlled territories in Africa. It's a whole huge industry for his country, and two million pounds of ice are getting siphoned away by crooks. Bond is going to have to break into this ring and just track where it's going. It basically spans from French-controlled Guinea in Africa all the way to Las Vegas, which means that it's America yet again causing problems for Bond. I have to laugh because it seems like in every book, Fleming in some way, shape, or form likes to stick in there how irritated Bond is at the way that the U.S. can infringe on English nobility and prosperity. And here it's directly, we're the enemies now. Specifically, it's American gangsters. He's fighting the mob. But I think for Bond, it is political in this way. And the reason why it falls to a double O agent to do this is because the CIA, the FBI, they're overtaxed with the mob in all different kinds of ways. They don't have the time, resources, or probably the desire to help England out in what would be considered a little matter. So they have this MI6 agent that's going to do the work for them and lay the groundwork so they can map out how their profits are being taken from them. Bond is not specifically being asked to kill, but he is being asked to follow the killers. And he's told again and again, this is a rough crowd. Bond doesn't believe it. I think he underestimates Americans, and he thinks that mobsters are just kind of silly caricatures that eat pasta, and like in the movies, you know, Tommy guns and all that. He doesn't think that they're worthy of his talent, or they match the weight and heft of some of the hardcore European spies that he's already fought. And even though the first novel, Casino Royale, gave me the impression that he was only committed to jobs where he would be fighting Smirsh, he allows himself to sit down with a makeup artist and they kind of work on a new identity. Now, it's funny here. Bond doesn't really go undercover, per se. He uses his name. There's no reason not to. Because he's not trafficking in Soviet spies who know his reputation, he can call himself James Bond in the passports he uses. But he is impersonating a low-level house thief who has sort of fallen into a job in which he will be transporting diamonds out of Europe through customs on an airline into America. That is the small role he is playing on the chain, and so they have to cover up the scar that he has on his right cheek, and he kind of has to play a new character. At one point, he calls himself Sergeant James from the police force when he's trolling around Europe, but it's half-hearted. At the end of the day, this is still the same uptight, very British Bond we've seen in the previous novels. He's not very good at playing a part. I'm of two minds, really, about this whole adventure here. On one hand, Fleming is 
got a renewed energy. He is overflowing with information. He has clearly studied up on the diamond smuggling operation and a lot of the details he provides. He even inserts characters here who are true to life. They were historical figures helping British fight the diamond smugglers. He knows what he's talking about here, and the passion comes through. It's cool, and I'm really interested in the subject. But it makes for an unwieldy, sort of amorphous villain. Bond has to go fight almost a faceless enemy here. There are seven different, quote-unquote, bad guys that he encounters along the way. Seven stops. And they have aliases, they work on both sides of the pond, and it can get really confusing, I think, trying to find out what's going on here. And because Bond's not even being asked to kill anyone, the mission is just to collect information, we're not really sure what he's going to do that's going to grab us. What he will eventually parse out, that this is all the handiwork of the Spangled Mob, who are two different brothers that are working, one in Europe, one in America. There's Jack, and he's running a diamond store in London and making frequent trips to Africa where he's worked it out with a dentist who collects diamonds literally from the men who do the pickaxe work. And from them, he hands it off by helicopter so that it goes into Europe and they're able to sell those. But the rest are sent to America where they eventually go to a casino in Vegas run by Serafimo, the other Spangle mobster brother. That's where Bond is headed. The diamonds are actually packed away in golf balls. Bond pretends to be a European interested in playing the green, and he is accompanied on the flight by Tiffany Case, an American woman that's, well, in part watching him to make sure that he does everything that he needs to, and who will be taking the diamonds with her once they reach New York to an unknown destination. Bond thinks it wise to, well, use his charm with women to try and take her out on a date, and that after they get through customs, he takes her to a nice restaurant, wines and dines her to see what it is she knows and what else he can find out about where the diamonds are going to next. Tiffany is the nicest smuggler that we're going to meet. She's a victim of circumstance. It's explained that she had a hard upbringing, that she was the daughter of a madam in San Francisco, that mobsters actually gang-raped her at 16, and that she now no longer has anything to do with men. She laughs at Bond's attempt to woo her and promises that he will not get her in bed. We know that she's charmed by him, but she does have a code of ethics and only reveals that she's going to go through Chicago and wind up at the hotel casino known as the Tiara. If only he didn't look like Hoagie Carmichael and more like Sean Connery, maybe he could have gotten to second base in New York. But they will meet again. Bond still has to pretend that he wants to get paid for the courier service. He goes to meet with Shady Tree, a man so crooked Tiffany characterizes him as saying you need to count your fingers after you shake hands with him. I thought that was funny. And there's lots of cute little turns of phrases here. Shady is the one that sends Bond on his most interesting tangent. I've mentioned in the past that it's the games of chance that have really sparked in the previous Ian Fleming James Bond novels, that when he's playing Baccarat, when he's playing Bridge, this is where he really excels. Well, now he's going to the races. The way that they pay people on the level or so at least appears to be on the level, is by having them bet on horses that they have guaranteed are going to win. So he heads up to Saratoga Springs to get paid out on a horse named Shy Smiles. 
and it is by far the best part of Diamonds Are Forever, partly because we're going to learn a little bit about his horse racing strategy. He borrows it from someone named Chicago O'Brien. All that was kind of interesting, and we're going to learn about a duplicitous way in which the mob influences horse racing. But it's also fun because we also are re-familiarized with Felix Leiter. Remember him? The CIA agent that I thought was shark food at the end of Live and Let Die has survived. Very happy to see him. I know he's a continuing character in the movies. I wasn't sure he was going to be in the books after that last adventure. He's retired from the CIA, however. His injuries to his leg, he's left with a limp, and he can't fire a pistol anymore. He has resorted to becoming a private detective for the Pinkertons. He just so happens to be investigating this horse racing that Bond is being asked to participate in to get paid, and so they work it out on how they're going to expose the scam of the Saratoga Springs Shy Smiles horse race. See, the real Shy Smiles is a bad horse. He's got the worst odds, and they allow him to be tested. Then they whack him and bring in a look-alike, a doppelganger Shy Smiles, who's actually really, really good, whose odds are much more in favor. I would think you'd be able to tell the difference, and there are ways, but of course people can be paid off, people look the other way, and Saratoga Springs is run by the mob. But this is how they're going to ensure that Shy Smiles wins the race. He has terrible odds, Bond bets on him, and he wins big when the doppelganger Shy Smiles comes in first. Bond and Leiter concoct a way to convince the jockey to throw the race, and Bond doesn't get paid, but it also means that a lot of other mobsters don't get paid, and they've upset the apple cart. So much so that we're introduced to more of the heavies on this diamond smuggling chain. Two other members of this Spangled Mob are Wint and Kid. Now, we are reviewing the movie Diamonds Are Forever next week. I've actually already seen it. After I finished reading this book, I went and saw the movie. So I can comment a little. I don't want to spoil my review for next week. But I will say this. Wint and Kid are characters from the movie. They're some of the most prominent henchmen, I think. The ones that really stick with you. They're homosexual killers. They have a lot more active role in the movie. They're responsible for a lot more killing in the movie than they do here. But they come for the jockey. Bond is relaxing in the mud baths after they've pulled off this Saratoga Springs upset, and the jockey is there as well, and Winton Kid come in in masks and beat the crap out of him, and really establish themselves as people to be reckoned with as we get towards the end of the novel, and Bond returns to go back to Vegas to get his money. He is still under the presumption that he is this man that has not been paid and asked to bet on a horse that didn't win. He goes back to Shady Tree, and Shady Tree tells him to go to Vegas and play blackjack, and flies him out for free to play blackjack. Bond kind of laughs at the card game he calls it the kid's game. We don't spend too much time at the blackjack table, but this is how they're finally going to pay the man for getting the diamonds through with the golf balls. It's also convenient that the diamonds have come to Las Vegas as well as Tiffany Case so that we can kind of bring this to a conventional close. Bond teams up with a cab driver that Felix put him in touch with and they are snooping around and wind up in Specterville, which is an old western saloony, almost a theme town. 
This is where Serafimo has brought the diamonds. This is where a lot of the action happens. Winton Kid put on cleats and kicked the crap out of him, and there's a train chase, and the expectations for a traditional Bond adventure kind of happen here at this point in Specterville. Now, I think it's interesting it's called Specterville. I know from the movies that there's an agency called Specter that will dog Bond. I don't know if this is established by Specter or it's just a coincidence that it happens to share the same namesake. Alas, Blofeld never turns up here, and it just sort of ends with death. I feel like we never have enough time with any of these hoods for them to feel like great bad guys, and that the best stuff here is when Fleming is going on digressions, when he's talking about Bugsy Siegel creating the Flamingo Casino, all of that stuff. I feel like he'd much rather just be telling a non-fiction story. And indeed, right after he finished publication of Diamonds Are Forever, he wrote a non-fiction book about the diamond smuggling trade. I'm willing to bet that that's a better book than this attempt to do a Bond adventure inside of the information he had collected. This is a garbled story, to say the least. But not without its charm. I don't want to get the impression that I'm disliking it, just that I'm feeling like it's not particularly well-structured or told. Naturally, Tiffany is coming around to Bond. She's the one that kind of gets him away from Winton Kidd, and Felix arranges transport back to Europe on a boat that Winton Kidd also get a cabin in, and the final battle is really between them and Tiffany and Bond. And even though Bond isn't supposed to be breaking up the diamond smuggling ring, just reporting on it, he has killed just about everyone involved. Only Shady Tree doesn't get bumped off by Bond. He really does put it out of commission by the end. He even goes to Africa at the Coda in the last scene and puts out the other brother. He beats them. It wouldn't be satisfying, I don't suppose, if Bond just collected information. You don't hire a double O agent to write a report. You hire them to kill somebody. And he does. Six out of the seven criminals he meets, he kills. And Tiffany, well, he converts her as well. It's kind of nice to see him finally get a woman in bed. <laughs> After all of this, I feel like Bond's relationships have been tragic in the novel. Nothing like of his carousing in the movies. Well, here, Tiffany really seems to be sticking around, and she has given up her chastity and her aloofness towards men, and, well, we get the sense that, who knows? I've never seen a Bond girl return in a movie, but maybe Ian Fleming has a different idea about what he can do with Tiffany. I certainly like her. This is the first female character, I think, that really connects with. I know that Bond fell in love with Vesper Lind in Casino Royale, but Tiffany Case is the first Bond woman that I've fallen in love with on the page. I think that she really works. She has a funny, flighty energy that's just right and helps make Bond seem less dour. So, should you read Diamonds Are Forever? I don't know. It's not an essential one. It's not a classic. It's not forever. I gotta tell you, it's not Casino Royale. I feel like it's on par with Moonraker, of, like, kind of a crummy spy adventure with, with cool moments and cool ideas. Like I said, the gambling is always the most fun. Horse racing, how that's all arranged, that's really my favorite part. I kind of wish that he had just spent the whole time in Saratoga Springs and not gone to Vegas and had all of that kind of more conventional spy action stuff. It doesn't hit the heights of Casino Royale, but it doesn't hit the lows of Live and Let Die either. I think that this one is just par, and, well, so far the average is not bad. One great one, one terrible one, and two so-so ones. I'm excited because the next one on our list is From Russia With Love, and that was so far one of my favorite movies to watch. I'm interested to finally get to the novel, but that is next on our retrospective 
Next week, I'll be covering the novel From Russia with Love, and hopefully it can measure up or even surpass what we saw in the screen. You can hear my review and my thought on From Russia with Love. That movie was the second one released, so it is over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, our sister movie review podcast. Go check that out. In the meantime, keep reading, and I'll talk to you next week from Russia with Love. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.